Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray before we come before the Word of God. Our Father, we're so thankful for this time we can spend together in Your Word. Pray that we come with hearts yielded to the truth. May your spirit enable us to understand the truth that is here about who you are and what you have done in and through our lives. And may you be glorified. May you receive all the praise. May we boast in the Lord and in the Lord alone. We yield ourselves to you before your word. And we ask that you instruct us that we might be obedient to your will. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we're going to start into Philippians this morning. We're going to get into the first couple of verses. And really we're only going to get into the first line of verse 1. And I have to do this because there's a lot here. There's a lot that Paul does to prepare us for the rest of the letter. But this is how it flows, and we need to understand this is a letter. So there is a salutation, grace be unto you. So we realize that the chapters and verses, they weren't a part of the original. This was something that was added later for our convenience. But sometimes it has a tendency to sort of trip us up because we don't realize where connections are for us. Like in chapter 1, the section actually begins in chapter 1, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is going to begin the exhortation, but he's going to follow it by a series of examples that flow down into chapter 2 and covers all of chapter 2. So really the whole section begins in 127 and it runs all the way through chapter 2, verse 30. Sometimes we don't realize this when we look at it as simply as a book and rather than what it is as a letter. Paul is going to express his concern for the Philippians in chapter 1, verses 3 through 26. He is going to give them the exhortation in ourselves as well as the example of Christ. And then he is going to give us the example of Timothy and then of Epaphroditus. And then he is going to give us another exhortation, an example of his own life in chapter 3 through 4, 9. And then he is going to express his concern for the Philippians and then the conclusion, grace be with you all. What's interesting about Paul's letters is he begins with grace and he ends with grace. Reason for that is, is because you cannot do any of these things that I exhort you to do or to understand without the grace of God. So it brackets the entirety of this letter, if you will, for us this morning as we walk through it. 
A little bit of an introduction we find in Paul's letters, and this is just a heads up of what he likes to do. And this has come from years of studying his writings and so on, and understand that there's a, a pattern to the way that Paul writes. And one of the things that he likes to do in the early verses of his epistles that he writes to the churches is that he introduces us to themes that he is going to develop through the rest of the letter. So he is preparing us, even in the salutation, verses 1 and 2, for what he is going to address in the rest of this letter. And some examples of some of the things he's going to touch on in verses 1 through 11 are the central focus of Christ in the gospel. If you noticed over and over in our reading in the first 11 verses, we have Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. So 18 times he's going to refer to Christ in chapter 1 alone. We are to hear this repetition as we read and think through these passages. He is the central figure. And so therefore he is going to be the linchpin of everything that he talks about throughout this letter starting in chapter 1. He also is going to introduce us to the language of servanthood and fellowship and the relational basis of this fellowship. And he is going to talk about the fact that he and Timothy are bond slaves. This is a term that he uses for all believers. We are all bond slaves. And then he's going to talk about the fact that Christ is the great example of this. Notice in chapter 2, verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So this is a thought that he's going to carry through this letter. Another thing is the reality of suffering for Christ as he's going to talk about his own personal example and then the future orientation of our present life in Christ and then finally the need for love and fruitful living in the present through Christ. And all of these things we will look at as we walk through here, but again, he is introducing us to these thoughts in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And he begins his letter in a usual way, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice again the reference to Christ in all three of the statements that he makes in the first two verses. Why? Because that is the relationship that is the basis for everything he will address in this letter. If you don't have that, these things aren't going to make sense to you. If you don't have that, then these exhortations aren't going to matter to you. But if you have that relationship with Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Him, then these things then will matter and should matter. Now I have to do this for you, and it seems a little bit mundane that I do this, but there are different ways in which there are letters that are written in Scripture. There is the Oriental and Jewish model, and this begins with the name of the sender and then those who are addressed, and then a greeting and it's in the form of a direct address, peace be with you. Now notice, the word peace is a part of this greeting, if you will, in the Oriental and Jewish model. So we have examples, Nebuchadnezzar, he says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Or Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace. So you'll notice that peace is a part of the greeting in these kinds of letters. Now I bring that up because Paul is going to use a mixture of the Oriental and Jewish and also, if you will, the Hellenistic. Hellenistic letters began this way. It began with the name of the one who is sending the letter. It then includes the name of those being addressed and how they are described. And then there's the infinitive Kyrene, greeting to you. 
Now Paul is going to replace the kyrene with the word charis, grace. But he's also going to note, if you will, he adds another word to this. Verse 2, grace and peace. So he takes both a Grecian way of introducing and giving the salutation, but also a Jewish way of doing it. And he is going to use the Greek word erene for the Hebrew word shalom. All of this is behind the scenes. He understands they're going to understand this as he addresses the church. And we need to understand these things. But all of these things are important because as he gives this introduction, he is addressing us in a certain way. We are saints in Christ Jesus. That's how we're defined. He is going to talk about the fact that he is addressing all those who are in Philippi, all those who are believers including the overseers and deacons. Now, we'll get into who overseers and deacons are. And we need to discuss this, but I, 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 part of our struggle in the church is that we don't understand these positions at all, these ministries, to be more accurate. Oftentimes, we think of these things with a business mindset. They're not business at all. But this is our problem as a church. We look to the world and we look to the world's models and then we bring those into the church and we think this is how we're supposed to function. So we'll talk about qualifications of overseers and deacons. And it isn't that they're being given some sort of position like they're getting a raise at a job and they've given a new title and therefore it comes with new requirements. No, the reality of it is, is that you are affirming in the life of these individuals who they already are. In other words, the requirements that Paul gives for overseers and deacons are not things that you become after you become that. It is what you are. And therefore, we as a church affirm that in you. And that is all that we are doing. And we understand that when he gives the qualifications for these individuals, it's interesting that he begins with the home. Begins with your wife. And then he begins with your children. Why? Because we are a family. We are the family of God. You're not businessmen. You're fathers. And that is the first requirement that is given for these men. So we will talk about this in regards to the church. And what does that then mean for us as a part of the body of Christ or the household of God? So his, salva his salutations as he begins these letters, there is a form to them, but they are nothing like stereotyped introductions to his letters. He moved by the Holy Spirit. He is going to put in profound theological truths into these introductions. And if you read Paul's letters, you will see a difference. Like I can show you the whole layout for the letter of Galatians just in the first few verses of the salutation. He prepares us for everything he's going to talk about. Same thing with 1 Corinthians. He begins with the statement, it is the church of God. So therefore, in the Thanksgiving section, 4 through 9, he gives us a series of divine passives. This is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God will do in the future as he confirms this in you. And therefore, it is his church, not our church. So what he says here is of great significance to us. He begins by saying the fact that they are slaves of Christ Jesus. We are saints in Christ. And then the source of our blessing, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these are vital to us. And we're only going to look at the first one this morning. Slaves of Christ. And this is literally what Paul is getting at. We are slaves. 
Servants doesn't quite capture the idea that Paul is addressing here when he talks about the fact that they are bond slaves of Christ. And again, this is a term doulos. He uses it for every single believer. We have all been bought by Christ and therefore we all are bound to Christ. And so Paul is going to establish this fact in the beginning of Philippians and it's important he does this because he's going to deal with the issue of unity. There was conflict, there was grumbling, there was murmuring, there was division, not only in the church in Philippi, but if you read chapter 1, you will see there's also division in Rome. There are those believers who were trying to cause him harm while he was in prison. They were divided in regards to their motives for proclaiming the gospel, although they were both proclaiming the gospel, both groups. But there was a division in the church, in Rome as well as in Philippi. So this is important for them to understand that they are slaves of Christ. First, he begins with their identification, Paul and Timothy. Now, I don't know if you do this, but names to me are significant. In the Old Testament, they are very significant. They think through their names before they name somebody because that has meaning to them. So all my kids, Ian, that's the Scottish, so he has to represent the clan, McDougal. So he has Ian, but it's from the name John. God is gracious. Because we had miscarriages before Ian was given to us. He was a gracious gift from God. We didn't deserve him. All of my kids have a significant name for significant reason. Michaela, from the Hebrew, Mikael, who is like God? The answer, no one. So for them, names were important. Paul, it's interesting because he gives us his name and we know him by this, but this wasn't his only name. But it's interesting that he chooses this name to be known by, and this was his Latin name, and it means little. I find this very significant. The more that I think about his life, and reading extra-biblical church tradition, we, we have a description of Paul that he was a rather short man. We don't know that for a fact, but that's the tradition of it. But it's interesting to keep that in mind when he addresses himself in this letter. Now, it's interesting because he addresses himself as Paul. And you have to keep in mind the nature of the times. This was a society that was politically governed by Rome, but culturally by Greece. Now, I'm not going to give you a total history lesson, although I'd love to, but I'm not going to. So, Philip of Macedon, he helped establish Philippi. It was named after him, the city of Philippi. He helped establish it. Now, he wanted to unite the Grecian people. But he didn't do it quite like his son Alexander did. So he started it, Alexander took it over, and he is the one who consolidated the Grecian people, but also the dialect. Because there were different Greek dialects, and he united all of them. And he went around the world, and he was conquering everybody, Alexander the Great, at a young age. And as he conquered everybody, he spread the Greek culture everywhere. So he took his historians, his philosophers, his doctors, everybody with him so that he could saturate everywhere with the Greek culture. Then Rome comes along after Alexander dies and they take over. And they established their empire. And it was a world empire in a sense of those times. So it was politically governed by Rome but culturally by Greece. And this is how Paul introduces himself with his Greco-Roman name as he writes these letters. Now, you need to know, he's also named Saul. He was given both names. As a child, he grew up with two names. His Jewish name was Saul. 
His Latin name was Paul. And this was a part of the custom because if there was interaction with the Grecian people, they can then use their Grecian name. Example, look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 11. We have Jesus, Hebrew name, who is also called Justice, Latin name, from the word just. In other words, they would bear two names depending on the group they were dealing with. And Paul's family was of the upper culture. And so as he would deal with people in business and so on, he would use Paul or he would use Saul. So Paul was born in Tarsus that we know. It was a prosperous commercial center. Now it's northern, southern Turkey, close to the Syrian border. But he was also given the name Saul. Now this is an interesting fact that he was given this name. This was the first name of the first king of the nation of Israel, right? Saul. Hebrew word, Shaul. He was head and shoulders above the rest. You know what the name Saul means? It means asked of Yah, asked of Yahweh. What did the people do when Saul became king? They asked what? They asked of Yahweh for a king like all the other people. So he gave them a king like all the other people. He was shoulders above the rest, right? If you read the text, it's what it says. He was bigger than everybody. And yet, he was a slouch. But Paul says, I bear his name. But it's interesting. If you read Acts, the first chapters, all the way up to chapter 13, he is referred to as Saul. Then chapter 13, he is referred to Paul. And from that point on, he is referred to as Paul. Because he is identifying himself with his ministry to the Greeks. That was his unique task, Ephesians chapter 3. So therefore, when he writes these churches, he is identifying himself as Paul and identifying himself with his ministry to the Grecian people. And he is going to get to his pedigree in chapter 3, verse 5, and it's pretty oppressive pedigree. His family was of the upper class. Since he was a citizen not only of Tarsus, but also a citizen of Rome, he was born this way, which means that his family had status, and they owned land either in Italy or a colony of Italy, but he had some status in society. Not only that, but he studied in Jerusalem. He studied under the very famous, famous Gamaliel, who was a Pharisee, Paul also then became a Pharisee, as he talks about in Philippians chapter 3, and he became a very legendary Pharisee. But isn't it amazing, God's design? This was a man who lived under the law. And he says in chapter 3, as to the law, perfect. Right? I did this. But guess what? I'm a minister of grace. Isn't that amazing how God works? He takes one of the greatest enemies of the church and he makes him one of the greatest spokesmen of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our God. But all of this lies behind the introduction. So don't pass by the names and think rather insignificant of this. Or Timothy, right? His name, his mom named him. And it was after two words, Timme and Teos, meaning honoring God. Clearly his mother desired that he would be God-honoring with his life, and truly he was going to be. There was very few men like Timothy. Now what's interesting, when we look at the salutation, it is not unique for Paul to include another name in the salutation with his. He does this. But it is unique that he would place someone so closely alongside of his name. And we'll look at some examples of this. The other thing that is unique is that he is going to refer to himself and Timothy as bond slaves. And grammatically, he's going to put this statement in apposition to both himself and to Timothy. He, he unites them together in this one designation. We are slaves together. And there's a reason why Paul does this. And it's important. And we cannot miss this.
So if we look at other letters by Paul during this Roman imprisonment, the first one, we find that Timothy is mentioned in Colossians. Now notice the salutation. From Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, now it comes, and Timothy, our brother. Notice how he puts all of this statement between himself and Timothy in the salutation. Notice what he does in Philemon 1.1. From Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So both of these, there's space between Paul and Timothy. There is a designation that Paul shares by himself, and then he adds Timothy, and then he calls him a brother in both cases, but not in this one. Clearly, Timothy is not a co-author of this letter, as we will look and see as we walk through this, but over and over, Paul uses the first person singular, but he is going to include Timothy because he has a relationship to this church. He is not a co-author of this letter, but he stands in agreement with everything that Paul writes. And so he's a corroborator, a witness to the truths that Paul is affirming to the church of Philippi. Paul does the same thing in Galatians. He lists the other brothers who are there. He doesn't give them by name, but he shows himself standing together with them as he talks about the content of the gospel. He does the same thing here with Timothy. Timothy was deeply interested in the condition of the church. He helped to evangelize Macedonia and Achaia. Not only that, but in Paul's third missionary journey, he was going to visit there a number of times. This was a unique man. There was very few men like Timothy. This was a young man, but he wasn't seeking his own interests. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself, nor establish his own position among the churches. He was there to serve Paul. And wherever Paul sent him, he went to do his beckoning. And he would go and be his representative wherever Paul sent him. So keep this in mind as, as he talks about Timothy and all that he is in regards to this church in Philippi. Not only that, but he was going to be the bond. If you read chapter 2, verse 19, he would be a bond between Paul and the Macedonian church. And he was going to inform Paul as to the condition of the believers there. Not only that, but Timothy was going to love and care for them. And Paul says of Timothy something that he doesn't say of anyone else, that Timothy was one who would care for them like no one else would care for them, save Paul himself. This was a man who had a retiring personality. He wasn't the gung-ho commando missionary like the Apostle Paul. He was a little bit retiring in his personality. He suffered from physical ailments, so Paul tells him to drink wine for his stomach. But yet Paul would send him to the most difficult churches. He sent him to Corinth, right? And Robert laid out the, the things that they had to deal with in that church, incest, one of them. And Paul's going to send Timothy to go deal with that. He must have trusted this young man a great deal to send him to go do that and know that it was going to be done. And that he says that Timothy will remind you of my ways which are in Christ. In other words, he will be there in my stead. And he will live the way that you are supposed to live. And he will tell you the things that I would tell you about Christ. And now, he's going to send him to Philippi. Another church that's having some problems. He sends him to Ephesus. Where he's got to talk about women's clothing and them being silent in church and what are the wealthy supposed to do with their money. Not easy subjects. And here he's a young man. He's going to go instruct them in all of these things. Not only that, but he's going to affirm elders and deacons in the church. So this was clearly a young man that was very important to the Apostle Paul. And I would say that 
Timothy not only leaned on the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul also leaned heavily on Timothy. He needed him. He needed a young man like him. He had others like Titus, but you'll note that the only one he writes to in the end, his very last letter, 2 Timothy, in his second Roman imprisonment before he is beheaded, he writes Timothy, his beloved son. His relationship to Paul then was a very intimate one. He ministered alongside of the Apostle Paul. Not only that, but he had ministered to Paul. And in Acts 19.22, and this is what led me to understand that Paul depended on him as much as Timothy did on Paul. And it says this, And having sent to Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So they were ministering to the Apostle Paul in what way we don't know, but, but somehow they were being an encouragement and being there for him and ministering to Paul. And then Paul sends them off as he remains in Asia. And he could send him know that he was going to take care of things. But now comes the designation, we are slaves of Christ. Now everything about this is unique. Everything about this phrase is unique. And most of the time we would read this letter and go right by it and get to the body because that's what we think the meat is lies, is in the body of the letter. But not so. It lies in the salutation. First, the unique placing of the statement. He replaces the word apostle with bond slaves or bond servants. And we'll talk about how I should render this word and I would do it bond slaves to capture the uniqueness of the word. But it is slave is at the heart of this term. Not servant. Because there's another word that's used for servant in the Greek, and it can be used for someone who is a hired individual who works in the home, but also someone who is a slave. And it can be used for both of them. And then there's a word doulos, which is this one here. And this is used of a slave that's owned. They have no rights of their own. And this is important for us to understand. Because we sing that we will live right to the will and glory of Christ, but the question is, will we? Now, I'll just tell you, I, I gave you a poem, and I'm not going to read it this morning. This poem was written by Mabel Williamson, who is a missionary in China. And she wrote this poem entitled, He Had No Rights. Now, I give it to you, and each of you has a copy. But I'm going to tell you, if you're comfortable with your life, don't read it. If you're happy with your status in life, don't read it. But if you want your life shaken up, then please go ahead and read it. But this is her reflection upon Christ and then her response in her own life to that reality. And it's powerful. So he replaces apostle with bondservants. Now this is something we have to understand. In every single one of Paul's letters, everyone except for the letters that he writes to Thessalonica and to Philippi and then to the personal one in Philemon, in every single one he uses the word apostle. Why? Because that's his official role in the church. He is an apostle. He is writing with authority. He has to do it in Corinth because there's so much sin there. He has to lay down, right? I have this authority to speak to you and address these things. Not only that, but it is the only church that questioned his apostolic authority. But every letter he does that except for these ones. The one to Thessalonica and then this one. So Lang has this observation then, the great German scholar. No one at Philippi had assailed his apostolic authority and hence he had no reason for giving prominence to his official dignity. I think it's more than that though. 
Paul refers to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 1 as the beloved and longed for, the joy and crown of him. So he dearly loves these people and they have a unique fellowship and we'll see this. There was a unique relationship. There was churches, yes, but not like Philippi. It is the only church that we know of that financially supported the Apostle Paul. And I would say to you, didn't support him, but released him to do ministry. It was the only one that we know of. He makes it clear he would not receive support from Corinth. And there's a reason for that, and we'll talk about that. But these people understood the ministry. They understood the gospel and the gospel ministry. And therefore, Paul had an an endearing relationship with them. So Hendrickson makes this statement. He says, They were those whom he knew himself to be on the most pleasing and intimate terms of fellowship and among whom his authority stood unassailed. There was an intimacy that he had with these people. He didn't have to say, I'm an apostle. They knew that. They knew that. But he did have to teach them a lesson. And therefore, he doesn't use that for another reason. It's uniquely positioned in the letter, the statement, doulos. Notice that Paul does not say, Paul a servant of, and then Timothy the brother. He says, Paul and Timothy, and they stand side by side. And then he adds on this statement that they are Adelphos. Everywhere else when he mentions Timothy, he refers to him as brother. And anyone else that is a fellow worker that Paul mentions, he refers to them as brother. But not an Adel- not Adelphos or a doulos, if you will. This is the only time he does this in salutation. Right? So all of this is unique. All of this is unique to this letter. It's interesting that Paul refers to himself as a bondservant in Romans and in Titus. But he also uses the word apostle. So here he is going to then humbly write, Timothy and Paul, slaves of Christ Jesus. This is a reflection of Paul's humility. He's not asserting his apostolic authority. He doesn't need to do that with them. What he wants to do is help them to see there isn't a distinction between us when it comes to serving the gospel ministry. This is not about me having a superior role and him an inferior role. This is about us as slaves serving the will of Christ. That is who we all are. We are all slaves serving the will of one master. Thus, it helps us to understand church leadership. What does that look like? Are they their masters over you? Is that their roles to dictate to you for everything that you are to do? Some would think so. Some pastors think so. Some rule with an iron fist because you know why? They're building their kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Matthew Henry says this interesting statement. He says, though Paul was alone divinely inspired, and he was, he joins Timothy with himself to express his own humility and to put honor upon Timothy. This was a statement not only of humility, but equality. This was a lesson the church of Philippi needed to to understand because diversity wasn't a problem for them. It was the issue of unity. As you read through Philippians, you will see over and over that Paul is going to talk about oneness, 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 oneness. They didn't understand oneness in Christ. They didn't understand the need for unity. They had fellowship, 
But they were starting to forget what that looks like and the significance of that for their life. So although they were different in years and in circumstances of their conversion, their spiritual maturity, the official activity that they had, they were both slaves with the same calling, the same ministry of gospel, and the same master in heaven. We bow to one will and one will alone. So we end with this, the uniqueness of this particular term that Paul uses. We need to understand that this is a term of redemption. In other words, when Paul uses this term doulos, and when he uses it for the church, douloi, you and I are douloi, we are slaves of Christ. It means that we have been freed from sin, but enslaved to God. We belong to another master now. We're no longer enslaved to sin, no longer enslaved to Satan, no longer enslaved to our sinful nature, no longer enslaved to this sinful society. We are now enslaved to God, and therefore we must act like it. We've been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, as Peter refers to it. It is that which is by quality precious blood because it is a lamb unblemished and spotless, the sinless lamb of God. And if we don't belong to ourselves any longer, then we can no longer then live for ourselves. So think about this when you read chapter 2. Notice with me, do nothing. Nothing from selfishness and empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not, verse 4, and merely is in italics, it's not there in the original, do not look out for your own personal interests, but namely for the interests of others. So Paul is preparing them for what is to come in the letter. It is good for us to understand this term. We translate it, and translations will render it, bondservants or servants. It literally means to be in bondage to, to be subject to. It is to be slaves. Doulos, it comes from the Greek word deo, which means to bind. It is the most abject, servile term in the Greek language. A Grecian individual, someone who is a Roman, would never use this term of themselves. A Greek would never use this term of themselves. It was a shame. It was a vice, not a virtue. Humility was a vice, not a virtue. Neither of these are virtues in our society. Humility and servanthood are not virtues in our society, but they are for us. What did Jesus do in John 13 when it says that the Father gave all power and authority to Jesus? What did He do? He took the apron of a slave, He got down and He washed the disciples' feet. That, my brothers and sisters, is leadership. That is our life as Duloy. That's what we're supposed to do for each other. So it is important for Paul to use this term. In a word, it carries the idea of owned by, abasement, subservience, total submissiveness to the master of the house. And notice, this is a household term. There's only one master to this household. There's only one father of this family. And thus, who he calls to take care of his family are family men. Men who are committed to their wives and children. And that's who we affirm in leadership in the body of Christ. It's the first thing we look for. 
In the Greco-Roman world, they would understand that it would carry these connotations of ownership, humility, and servitude. They were slaves of Christ, bound to their master, but those slaved were doing so out of a loving service for Christ. This was not something that was done out of begrudgingness. This was something that they loved to do. They cherished to do. You'll notice that this is going to become a dominant theme throughout this letter because everything is in, of, and by, and for Christ. Christ is the basis of their communion together. He is the focus and the content of the gospel. He is the Lord whom every knee shall bow. And Paul is going to stress throughout this letter that everyone understands this fact, that the greatest person must be the servant and that the most important is to be the slave of all. And this is the example that Christ set for us in 2.7. Therefore, he says in 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You want to know what it looks like? Look to Christ. You want to say you're a follower of Christ? See, some people think I'm a simpleton theologically because they'll say, well, what are you? Are you dispensational? Are you covenantalist? Are you this? Are you that? And I say I'm a Christian and they think, well, that's such a simpleton statement to make. No, it's not. Not if I understand the significance of that. I am a follower of Christ. Thus, this means I live a radically different kind of life. It is enough for me to try to live up to that, not to every other man's system. Amen? There's only one will that I want to bow to. There's only one I want telling me what to believe and how to behave. And thus we come to the Word of God for this. But all the way through this letter, Paul's going to use words of service. You are a slave who we are serving and that we are servants. And over and over he is going to remind us of this fact that Christ's way is to be the way in every way in our life. Amen? Rob, would you close an order of prayer, brother?